As anyone who knows me can attest to you, I like to read. And uh, I particularly like to read about history because it's the outworking of the providence of God in the affairs of man. We can't look into the future, but we certainly can look into the past and see how God has worked. Recently, I have been reading about the formation of this country, the United States of America, and all that was involved in making that happen. It's quite an amazing thing, actually, the various social and economic diversity that existed at the time to be brought together into one nation. It was quite a process of negotiation for them to bring forth a constitution under which we all reside. A constitution whose opening words, I suspect, are quite familiar to you. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. A very, very famous preamble. America has a Constitution and America has a legal code. And we operate under it. Israel also had a Constitution and a legal code. Theirs was given to them by God at the base of Mount Sinai so many, many centuries ago. That legal code is called the Law of Moses. And for 1,500 years, that system defined and governed every aspect of Jewish life. It not only addressed issues of morality, but addressed things with regard to social relationships, economic issues, agriculture, dietary laws, hygiene, national celebrations, sacrifice and worship, just to name some of the things covered under that cause, that uh, constitution and law given by Moses. That legal code was so old and so ingrained into the minds of the ancient Jew that I think it's a safe statement to say that it defined what it meant to be Jewish. It was defined in terms of the law of Moses. Then came along Jesus of Nazareth and his apostles. And they preached a message that said, in essence, the old way is obsolete. And now on equal footing, with equal standing, both Jew and Gentile could enter into the presence of the God of the universe through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. That, as you can probably imagine, was a controversial message. A difficult and challenging message to both preach and to hear. Open your Bibles to Romans Chapter 7, page 1130, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. 
We've entitled a series of sermons coming from Romans chapter 7, The Law Cannot Sanctify You. That is the overarching theme of this seventh chapter. In the first five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has demonstrated that redemption cannot be kept by, or cannot be had by law keeping. Merely keeping the law will not provide redemption, whether it be the Mosaic law or any other series of laws. Now in chapter 7, he is going to teach us that sanctification does not come by law keeping either. Let me read the text for you. Romans 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the leather. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This morning, we're going to ask and answer two questions that Paul addresses here in verse 7 so that we can further understand why the law cannot sanctify you. The first question, and it's there in your handout, the beginning of verse 7 is, the question, is the law evil? Is the law evil? Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin or sinful? Now, leading to this question is all that has gone before. And Paul has spoken very forcefully with regard to the law in a number of places leading up to this. And he has talked about the impotency of the law to redeem and he has spoken in the end or in verse 14 of chapter 6 and in the first six verses of chapter 7 with regard to the impotency of the law to sanctify. Specifically in verse 5, chapter 7, take a look at it. He has said that there the law is not neutral, but it actually adds to our bondage to sin. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And so... The obvious question that would arise in any thinking person's mind is, is the law sin? Is the law sinful? Is the law evil? If it cannot justify us and it cannot sanctify us, and what it does is inflame our sinful passions, is the law somehow evil? Is the law sin? Is the law sinful? 
Notice how Paul answers that question. He does it in the same short, strong way that he has answered two other questions. Verse 2 of chapter 6, verse 15. The same construction. It's really an expression of abhorrence. He says, may it never be. No, 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 no. To ask that kind of question is, is to answer it. Absolutely not. The law is not sinful. The law is not evil. These, quote, logical questions that have continued to arise in the teaching here arise because of a misunderstanding of what it is Paul's really teaching. And, you know, that highlights for us a a basic danger that can occur whenever strong theological teaching is presented. That danger is, is that people either kind of half hear or they hear and don't really understand what it is they're hearing. And, and so they go off half-cocked. They make assumptions. They draw conclusions. Their logic comes into play and says, well, if this is true, then this must be true. And therefore, you must be teaching this or you must believe this. It takes them way off track. People make unbiblical deductions and inferences. Even our sermon title for this whole section of chapter 7, the law cannot sanctify you, could be taken and run with in a way that would be misunderstood that I am teaching somehow that there is no place for the law in the life of a Christian. I haven't said that. I have not said that and I will not say that. But I will say strongly again, With the Apostle Paul, the law cannot sanctify you. If you get nothing else, get that. Verse 7, what shall we say? Is the law sinful? Is the law evil? May it never be. Flip over to verse 12. The law is not evil. The law is not sinful. Verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous. And good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good because it reflects the character of the lawgiver. It has the imprint of its author stamped all over it. Beloved, the law reveals the heart of God. The Mosaic law reveals the very heart of God. Romans 15, verse 4. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We won't turn there, but... Speak to that. The law of Moses reveals the heart of God. It instructs his people as to who he is, what pleases him, what displeases him. In the law, we find specific commands that reveal God's holiness, righteousness, compassion and mercy. Now, these characteristics of God are clearly seen in the scripture before the giving of the law at Sinai. You can read before the law was given there in Exodus and you can see God's compassion. You can see God's holiness. You can see God's righteousness. You can see God's mercy. It's not that you can only see it in the law, but it was there in the law that it was codified. Now, there are some Christians, I need to address this, there are some that teach the law can be broken down into three components. They speak of the law as a moral code, a civil code, and a ceremonial code. And I understand where they 
come up with that. They're trying to to differentiate various parts of the Mosaic law dealing with those aspects of life. But when Paul says that we are no longer under the law, he is referring to the Mosaic law in its totality. He is referring to its civil aspects. He is referring to its ceremonial aspects. And he is referring to its moral aspects. Because the law is a unity. It is a unity. Now, those who come from the Reformed background, the Reformed faith, and especially the Puritans, like to separate out this moral component of the law from all the others and say we're no longer under the ceremonial law, we're no longer under the civil law, but we remain under the moral law. But I think that kind of differentiation runs squarely into the face of the Scriptures. It flies in the face of the Scriptures. I think the Scriptures themselves actually refute that kind of a notion. Let me illustrate that for you. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 5 through 30. We're not going to turn there. There's not time this morning. You write it down. You check me out on this. Deuteronomy 22, verses 5 through 30, clearly located within the law, the law passages of Deuteronomy. And in that passage, there are regulations given with regard to cross-dressing, Compassion for birds. The need to build a parapet around the roof of your house. A prohibition against sowing two kinds of seed together in the same field. A prohibition against blended fabrics. And laws concerning adultery and fornication. All in the same context. The Apostle James says, James 2.10, that whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. There is no Jewish understanding of dividing the law into three portions. That is only a later understanding that has come through Reformed theology. So it seems to me that trying to separate out the moral portion of the law of Moses is fraught with subjectivity. What would you do with that Deuteronomy passage? What is the basis, the hermeneutical basis under which we can say that we can wear blended fabrics okay, but we can't practice adultery or fornication or cross-dressing? They're all blended together. So the law is a unity. The law is a unity. The law of Moses is a, is a unity. And it is a unity that is definitely not evil. Look again, Romans 7, in the beginning of the verse. May it never be. Well, then what is the purpose of the law? What is its purpose? Why did God give it? And that takes us to our second question this morning. Our second question is, does the law have a purpose? Does the law have a purpose? Verse 7, Paul says, on the contrary, the law is not sin. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Notice 
Look at the verse with me. Notice how Paul answers the false assertion that the law is sinful or evil by introducing the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet is the tenth commandment. And by that commandment, by enlisting that commandment here into his argument, he's he's not only representing the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, for that is the tenth and final of those ten, but he's also representing the law as a whole. He's pulling it all forward in that fashion. And he says that it has a godly purpose with regard to sin. The law brought home to Paul... Not just an intellectual understanding of sin, but its awful and wicked reality. It was the law that brought it home to his heart. Notice he said that it was through the law that he came to know the sinfulness of sin. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, he says. Had the law not said, you shall not covet it, Exodus 20, verse 17, Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, Paul would have never known what coveting really was. Epithumia, by the way, in the Greek, means desire. Desire. Beloved, the law defines sin. The law defines sin. Apart from law, sin still exists. But it cannot be designated as a transgression without a restriction with which to break. And so the bringing of the law to bear defines transgression, defines the sin. Notice again with me here in verse 7, I think it's instructive here, that when Paul quotes the 10th commandment, he doesn't quote it all. He quotes only the beginning portion of it. You shall not covet, or literally, you shall not desire. I think it's instructive here that he doesn't include all of that Tenth Commandment. And by doing so, he omits the examples given in the Ten Commandment of those things that were not to covet. And I think the significance of this is, is that Paul has widened this commandment for us right here. This commandment has now been widened. It does not only prohibit illicit desires, like another man's wife, as it said originally in the Tenth Commandment, but it now, or it, it, it prohibits, not which is just obviously illicit, but any desire not in accordance with the will of God. Any desire that's not in accordance with the will of God is prohibited. When we understand the commandment like this, it pierces the heart. It goes right to the center of the human heart, which is a cesspool of discontentment. You shall not desire. You shall not desire. God is forbidding desire itself. He is forbidding desire itself. What this means is that the sin lies in the desiring, not in the object desired. Any desire contrary to the will of God for our life is prohibited. 
The moment you find yourself thinking, I wish I had dot, 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 it is sin. It is sin. I made up a little test for coveting. A little coveting test. Can you honestly say the following? This is the test. Okay, listen. Can you honestly say the following? I am content with any food, any clothing, any climate, any society, any attitude, any recognition or obscurity, any level of health, and any interruption by the will of God. When I see my brother prosper and have his needs met, I rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God, even though my needs are far greater and even more desperate than his. If you cannot honestly say that, then you are guilty of the sin of coveting. You are guilty of the sin of coveting. Now, when we begin to understand the true nature of this Tenth Commandment, it rips open our sinful hearts, doesn't it? It exposes the corruption that lies within. The Ten Commandments aren't just a simple checklist. Oh, don't do that, or don't do that, or don't do that, or don't do that, I'm fine. By the way, lest you think I'm getting way too far out on the limb here, just remember with me in the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus exegeted the seventh commandment about adultery. Do you remember? He sort of drove that one home, didn't he? The law is not sinful. It is not sinful. It has a God-given purpose of revealing the sinfulness of sin. That's its purpose. But is it its only purpose? Is that the only purpose? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because the answer is no. It's not. What I want to do here in just a few minutes is I want to briefly suggest to you eight purposes for the law of Moses. The law as we would know it from the Old Testament. Eight purposes. I'm just going to go through these quickly. You'll have to check them on your own. First, the law was added because of transgressions. Galatians 3, verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions. I think what that essentially means is, is because of the sin of God's chosen people, the law was added at Sinai in order to administer the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you have to kind of hang with me on this. The people of Israel had a covenant promise given to Abraham and his posterity. And the law administered the promises of that covenant. What I mean by that is as they obeyed the law, they enjoyed the blessings of that covenant. When they disobeyed the law, they were stripped of the blessings of that covenant up to and including their ejection from the promised land. The law was added because of transgressions. First, second, the law was added to restrain societal sin. 
the law was added to restrain societal sin. First Timothy, chapter one, verses eight through eleven. Paul speaks of the law being used that way. The restraint comes through the implementation of the penalties called for under the law up to and including death. So it formed a restraining factor on societal sin, the law. Third, the law was added because it brings about the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 2, and here Romans 7, 7. The law was added because it brings about the knowledge of sin. Epigenosis, the full knowledge of sin. This, by the way, is critical to evangelism. And this is one of the ways that the law is still used lawfully today. And unless and until a person knows that they are sinful and how sinful they really are, they will sense no need for a Savior. The good news of the gospel is not that good if you don't understand the bad news first. So the law was added because it brings about the knowledge of sin. Fourth, the law reveals the full and terrible nature of sin. The law reveals the full and terrible nature of sin. Verse 13, Romans 7. Paul says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Sin is so wicked, so wicked that it actually takes that which is good and holy and righteous expression of the will of God and it turns it into a stimulant for more sin. That's how sinful sin is. Now, if you've been listening carefully, you note there's a tension here already. There's a tension here. The tension is the role of the law in restraining sin and the role of the law in stimulating sin. How can it be a restraint and a stimulant at the same time? Here's the answer. It is a stimulant for sin in that it stimulates inward rebellion. It is a restraint of sin in that it has penalties attached to it that suppress its outward manifestation of sin. So it stimulates internally rebellion and it externally suppresses the behaviors because of its penalties. Let me try to illustrate that for you. You tell your little child to sit in the chair because if they don't, you are going to spank them. And so they sit in the chair. But inwardly, they are still standing up. Right? So inwardly, your command to them has stimulated the rebellion that says, I may be sitting on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing right up. Through the threat of the chastisement, if they don't sit down, you get the outward conformity. So that's what I mean. It stimulates and it restrains simultaneously. Fifth. Fifth. The law was introduced in order to increase the culpability of sin. It was introduced in order to increase the culpability of sin by adding willful disobedience or transgression to the simple failure to live according to God's standard. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 speaks of that. Sixth. 
The law was added in order to bring the entire world of humanity individually before the divine bar of justice and find them all guilty and liable to condemnation. The law was added in order to bring the entire world individually before the divine bar of justice and to find them all guilty, all liable to condemnation. This is a verdict that universally silences the excuses that man has to offer. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The law closes everyone's mouth, takes away all their excuses. Seven. Seventh purpose. The law was added to restrain the sin of Israel until the new covenant arrived. The law was added to restrain the sin of Israel until the new covenant arrived. Galatians chapter 3 verses 23-24. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Poor translation there, by the way. We'll talk about that in a minute. That we may be justified by faith. The law was Israel's pedagogos, pedagogos, a schoolmaster, translated in the New American Standard as tutor. Tutor is not a very good translation either, because our idea of a tutor is one who just sits down and works with you to give you a better understanding of what it is you're supposed to know. The Greek word is pedagogos or schoolmaster. And in ancient times, this would typically have been a slave and their responsibility was to exercise restraint over the child, to restrain the child, to accompany the child to school and make sure they didn't skip or ditch along the way. Okay, the pedagogos, they would accompany the child, they would protect the child from outward and evil influences, they would restrain the child's behavior until the child came of age and was legally recognized as a son. So what Paul is saying here, verse 24, Galatians 3, is therefore the law has become our schoolmaster, not to lead us to Christ, but to restrain us until Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The law was added to restrain the sin of Israel until the new covenant arrived. Eighth and final. The law was given to provide a prophetic witness to the one true way of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21 The law was added in order to provide a prophetic witness to the true way of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system, which is inexorably entwined in the law of Moses, bore witness to the righteousness of God and the futility of man to be able to achieve that righteousness. When a man took his sacrifice as a sin offering to the temple and he laid his hand upon the animal and confessed his sins and then slit its throat, he did so witnessing to the very fact that he had faith not in the blood of the goat 
to forgive his sin, but by faith he was looking forward to the one and final sacrifice who would for all time take away his sin. Now, lest you think I'm reading too much into that, that is exactly the argument of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. When they entered the temple and slaughtered the animal, they were prophetically saying there's a better and a greater sacrifice to come. And by faith, I'm looking for that sacrifice. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So the law provided a prophetic witness. The true way of salvation is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some who think that I'm teaching a dangerous doctrine here. So I'll just address that. There are some who think that it is dangerous to teach that the New Testament believer has been released from the Mosaic law, that we are not under the law. And what they want to do is they want to maintain the law or maintain that the law somehow has some kind of continuous hold over us as Christians, that we have a responsibility to obey it. Sometimes it's called the rule of life. I think Calvin talked about it that way. But I think that's a misunderstanding, and I think there, are, there is a good and solid answer to why it is not dangerous and indeed biblical to say that we are no longer under the law of Moses. This is the counterbalance to it because what's implicit in the, under, in the statement that it's a dangerous thing to say you're no longer under the law of Moses is that you are now under no law at all, that you are antinomian, that you are against the law, that you can do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. And clearly that's not true. So we're not advocating antinomianism here. So why is it not dangerous to say you're not under the Mosaic law? And let me just be really, really specific to say you're not under the Ten Commandments. Here's the reason. The first is Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 6 that by grace we were made to die to the reign of the law. And that happens only in union with Jesus Christ. That's important to understand. Our death through the law, being lifted out from under the law, happens with our union in Jesus Christ. When God cuts us loose from the Mosaic law, He simultaneously joins us to Jesus Christ. We are never in a place where we are a law unto ourselves. We go from under that law into union with Jesus Christ. A union, by the way, that God ensures will bring forth the fruit of righteousness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the process and the mind of God of joining us in union to Jesus Christ, taking us out from under the law, doesn't leave us in this no man's zone where we're free to sin. And in fact, what it does, and we've talked about this, is it enslaves us to Jesus Christ. We move from law to grace. Beyond that, when we are joined to Christ, we enter into the new covenant. We move from the old and we enter into the new covenant. And one of the features of the new covenant is that the law of God is written on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The law no longer resides on tablets of stone, 
read Ten Commandments. It now resides within our heart. It is written on our hearts. And through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are given both the desire and the ability to keep that law. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, to just give you a couple. So we are brought into the new covenant when the law is no longer on the tablets of stone. It is written on our heart and the indwelling spirit of God gives us desire and ability to keep the law. So we are never, ever, ever without law. We are not without law. Paul says that 1 Corinthians 7, 19, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22. He says, I am not without law. But as now listen carefully, as new covenant believers, we are no longer under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. Galatians chapter six, verse two. We are under the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is given in the many, many, many ethical commandments of the New Testament. If you want to understand what the law of Christ is, then read your New Testament and it's many, 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 many ethical commandments that come to us. So it's not like, again, that we are in some lawless zone. We are under the law of Christ. And that law is most perfectly summarized, I believe, in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And thus you will fulfill the law of Christ if you love one another. So let's summarize. As a new covenant believer, as a Christian, we're no longer under the law of Moses. It's okay to wear garments of mixed fabric. It's okay to do that kind of stuff. It's not okay to commit adultery. It's not okay to participate in fornication. Those things are prohibited to us under the law of Christ. So there are still ethical commands, but we have been moved from one age, one eon into another. And that old law has passed away. It is the old covenant. It is the old covenant. And so to attempt to achieve holiness by somehow keeping that law, even a, a watered down version of that law. Remember, I told you last week, Daniel Webster said a law without penalties is merely good advice. An attempt to keep that law as some sort of rule of life or whatever it is in whatever form or fashion you or someone else has put it together and assume that that will make you holy in Christ. Paul says, no way. In fact, all it does is inflame your passions for sin. We don't have time this morning to go any further, but we will continue to hammer away at this. Because there's probably no more crucial issue for sanctification, once we have come to the understanding in chapter 6 that it is our union with Christ that has broken our slavery to sin, now we must understand how it is we walk in holiness. Not by keeping law. Chapter 8, walking in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your word and thank you for its clarity. Thank you also for its profundity. Our Father, as we plumb the depths of these things, 
we, as it were, see into the very mind of God. The incredible and amazing way that you have established your church and called out a people, both Jew and Gentile, on equal footing that we might be redeemed and sanctified. Our Father, as we briefly spoke about the issue of coveting, something which is also spoken of under the law of Christ, I pray Your Spirit would apply the reality of what that means to our lives. That we would not grow complacent. But we would search our own hearts and allow Your Spirit to do so. That we might root out the evil passions that lie within. Not by establishing rules and regulations of things we do and don't do by walking in the Spirit and loving both you and others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.